Being in Time, an interesting book you probably shouldn't read. Written by Scott Young, April 2020. So I just spent the last months doing a deep dive trying to understand Martin Heidegger's seminal work, Being in Time. You probably shouldn't read it. And at the same time, it's one of the most interesting and thought-provoking books I've read in the last decade. So this is my attempt to try to reconcile those two beliefs. All right, well, the reasons not to read Being in Time are obvious. First of all, the book is only half finished. Of what was written, the second division is so muddled that even after taking a companion class with dozens of hours of lectures, I still have no idea how to make sense of it. Also, Heidegger was a Nazi. It's not clear how much Heidegger's politics influences writing, especially around 1927 when this book was published. Still, there's an undeniable ick factor there. However, even if you do separate Heidegger's politics from his philosophy, he may have bigger problems. Philosopher Philippe Lemoyne describes Heidegger half-jokingly as, quote, the only man about whom one can truly say that being a Nazi was the least of his sins. Indeed, Heidegger was a major influence of postmodernist thought. You know, that philosophy that says that there is no truth, science isn't real, all that exists are belief structures made by whomever is in charge. Okay, Heidegger didn't exactly say those things, but his work definitely inspired later postmodern thinkers like Foucault and Derrida. On top of all that, he's a terrible writer. It took me a companion course, dozens of articles and books to try to make sense of it from a first reading, and I can honestly say that reading the Tao Te Ching in Chinese was less effortful. So given all this, why spend two months grinding through the book, and why should I bother even trying to make this podcast now? Sunk cost fallacy in action, or is there something more? Interesting takeaways from a nearly unreadable book. To save you the effort, there were three big ideas I got from being in time that were worth the price of admission. First, the concept of a background or world. Two, a rethinking of what it means to be human. And three, circles of interpretation rather than a fundamental ground. So let me try to do my best to explain each of these so that uh, you don't have to wade through the same book. First, discovering the world. The world is not the universe. So the universe is full of atoms and leptons and photons and stuff. It's what physics studies. The world, in Heidegger jargon, is in contrast something very human. Indeed, having one may be our defining quality. So you can see what Heidegger means by world when you hear expressions like the business world or the world of basketball. These expressions aren't pointing to the electrons that make up merges or layups, but the fact that these domains are backgrounds upon which cultural practices reside. The business world, however, is just part of the broader world we live in. And the world Heidegger wants to talk about isn't a sub-world like the world of baseball, nor even the most general world which contains these different subworlds. Indeed, he's not really even interested in describing the contents of our world at all. Instead, he's interested in the worldliness of the world, or how these worlds are structured in general. Okay, so this is already a little confusing, so let me try to give an example. Consider a hammer. What is it? Well, the naive view, in Heidegger's mind at least, is to see it as a list of properties, a wooden shaft with a metal blob at the end. 
Okay, a slightly more sophisticated view might also include that it's a tool or that it's for driving nails, as if these were extra properties of the object, like wood and the metal it's made of. To Heidegger, this is totally wrong. What a hammer is, meaning how we make sense of it, isn't as a wooden shaft with a metal blob at the end. No, you make sense of a hammer by hammering with it. If you have the skill for hammering, the way the hammer shows up for you is by being something you don't really think about at all. Instead, you're thinking about how you need to hammer in those nails into just that right spot to join the table leg to the table. So to be a hammer, then, is to be something in the periphery of your attention, in the context of some larger, meaningful activity. This is what he's trying to talk about when he's talking about what worlds are. So what's the big deal then? Well, it means that you can't make sense of a hammer in the most basic way without also having nails, lumbers, the table you build by hammering, the practice of sitting at tables to eat, and so on. In other words, the hammer, as we experience it when hammering, isn't a thing at all, but part of an interconnected nexus of equipment that we all know how to use. It's via this interconnected nexus that we can glimpse at the worldliness of the world that Heidegger wants to talk about. Okay, but that's dumb because obviously when you look at the hammer, you can see it's made of wood and metal. To say that that isn't what a hammer is seems obtuse. Heidegger would respond that, of course, you can also look at the hammer. It's just that this is the normal way that we make sense of hammers. Indeed, he would go further and argue that in order to just stare at a hammer and see that it is really metal and wood, we have to strip away all the context that enables us to skillfully use the hammer. Heidegger illustrates this stripping away in a multi-step process. So first, in its most basic sense, the hammer isn't a thing at all. It's just an invisible part of the overall task of hammering that you're working on. Then maybe you notice that the hammer is a little bit too heavy. And so this makes it start to stand out for you. Now you can take notice of it, but still in a way related to the task of hammering. So too heavy is still not a property of hammers, but something that exists in this context for you at this particular time. A sledgehammer may be too heavy for building a birdhouse, let's say, but not for smashing rocks. With further reflection, too heavy can just become heavy, where you notice that it has weight independent of your current task. This too is a further decontextualization of the hammer into a separate object. Finally, if you were a modern thinker, you might even say that the hammer has mass, something even more decontextualized and independent. And there's nothing wrong with doing this. You can learn a lot by removing the world from the things you encounter so you can study them scientifically. Our modern world is built on this ability. But at the same time, it's important to recognize that this isn't our typical starting point. If you start with the raw physical properties of the hammer, Heidegger argues, you couldn't build back the skills for dealing with it in the world that we actually live in. Okay, so what do I like about this idea? Well, I'm not a philosopher. I don't really know enough about this to know whether Heidegger's account undermines truth or reality or whatever. But I do have an interest in how the mind works. And this seems to me to be a more compelling account than the traditional picture. So we know, for instance, that over evolutionary time, animals begin with motor reflexes for dealing with their bodies and the outside world, although this is still not a cultural world at this point, just a physical environment. 
Yet tradition has largely assumed that reason, our ability to think about things, arrived ex nihilo as an add-on that's disconnected from these more basic abilities. It seems more plausible to my decidedly non-expert eyes that these kinds of skills might end up being the building blocks for abstract reasoning rather than the other way around. Cognitive scientists have recently been coming to the appreciation that an unconscious runs most of the show for our brains. This unconscious is not a Freudian unconscious in that thoughts that could exist in the mind but are, they're just simply being repressed. Rather, it's an adaptive unconscious that allows our minds to work but does so in a way that never could be conscious. How are you controlling your ears to listen to what I'm saying right now? How do you separate the pitches out of my voice in order to form actual words and sentences? You don't know how you did this, yet doing that made listening to me possible. Heidegger's notion of world is more cultural than biological, but I don't see why that division is particularly important. So cultural evolutionary theorists like Joseph Heinrich point out that many of our cultural practices are adaptive, even though we don't really know the reasons for them. Whether nature or culture, I agree with Heidegger that a lot of the heavy lifting that makes intelligence possible is being done in this background of activity that is largely invisible to us, which we cannot articulate the reasons for. Two, rethinking human being. What does it mean to be human, deep down? Heidegger has a unique answer to this question, and except instead of using existing words like human, soul, consciousness, or person, he decides to invent a new one, Dasein. There's a little bit of justification for this neologism. Uh, we have too much philosophical baggage attached to the old words, Heidegger argues, so it's impossible to see what he wants to show you if you stick to the words infected by the old philosophy. If you want to start a new paradigm, you have to be willing to sound incomprehensible to those still committed to the old one. Dasein is our way of being, which he also calls existence. To Heidegger, hammers and quarks don't exist, only things like us do. This doesn't mean what you think it does, it's just him redefining the word existence to apply to only this narrow sense. Yeah, I, I know, that's kind of confusing. Our being, in essence, according to Heidegger, isn't a rational animal, immortal soul, stream of consciousness, or any of the other previous interpretations. Rather, we are, at the base level, self-interpreting. We're the being that makes sense of other beings which importantly includes ourselves. To be a human being, then, is to take some stance on what it means to exist. This doesn't have to be a self-conscious identity. Indeed, the stance we take may be inarticulatable, so it's not as if saying to yourself, I'm a father or I'm a video game addict is what makes you human. Rather, it's all the invisible practices that you're so immersed in that they are effectively invisible that allow you to make sense of yourself and be something unique. This definition, that we're essentially self-interpretation, reminds me of Douglas Hofstadter's book, Gödel Escher Bach. In it, Hofstadter argues that we are strange loops, like the staircases in M.C. Escher drawings that continually go up but somehow loop back on themselves. We are the things which, by our very constitution, take a stance on the thing that takes stances. Loopy. Heidegger, however, takes his definition further. Combined with his definition of world, he redefines us once again as being in the world. That in is supposed to mean more like interaction than inside. In this view, we're not separate minds isolated from an external world, but inseparable from the world we deal with. 
And if you haven't lost track of all our redefinitions at this point, Dasein, existence, being in the world, then at this point you find something rather original. The modern view is that we are subjects who look over objects, streams of consciousness, raise cogitants, or something similar. Being in the world, in contrast, says that while private experiences are possible, they're not the default. To use Hubert Dreyfus's explanation, our default way of being is to be, quote, empty heads turned towards one single, self-evident world. Much of philosophy has worked itself into knots about how we can know things about the world and how we can ever really agree that we're having the same inner experiences as other people. Maybe we're all living in the matrix and this world isn't real, etc. Heidegger just decides to flip the problem around. If our basic state of nature is that we live in a shared world, then the problem of how we can agree on things is dissolved away. When you and I are looking at the same picture, we're not each representing separate little mini pictures inside our heads and struggling to compare them. We're just looking at the same picture. Of course, in flipping the problem, this view of us as being in the world creates new problems just as it dissolves old ones. If we inhabit shared worlds, how do we account for the fact that people have different knowledge of things or that they can have false beliefs? If our basic existence is a shared public world, then what about dreams, the quintessentially private experience? What I like about this idea? Well, Heidegger's concept of world seemed obviously true to me once it had been spelled out. This concept of being in the world doesn't have the same obviousness, but it may be a fruitful paradigm even if some of the problems aren't worked out. One thing I like about the idea is that it seems to correspond with our psychological development. Children start out as empty heads turned toward the world, but at around age three or four, they start to gain the ability to recognize that other people may have different beliefs than they do. This theory of other minds has traditionally been presented as discovery, as if children were inherently solipsistic until they discover that other people actually exist. But there's another way to frame this story. What if being in the world is simply more basic than having private experiences? Like the example with hammering being more basic than just staring at a hammer, it may feel like private experiences are more basic than public ones, but this might just be a bias from traditional accounts of philosophy. Hubert Dreyfus gives some telling anecdotes to suggest our view of the primacy of private experiences may be a modern invention. In Augustine's Confessions, he recounts how people from around the world would come to see Ambrose, the Bishop of Milan. Why? Because he had this strange ability to read books without having his lips moving. Similarly, Dreyfus recounts Homer's Odyssey, where during a banquet, the hero, Odysseus, is cited for his incredible ability to, quote, weep inwardly while having dry eyes. Apparently, in those days, the idea of having a private emotion was seen as a mark of extraordinary ability. And I suspect there's some truth to this. Although we can all think of prominent examples where people lack knowledge that we have, it might be that these are correctives to a more basic sense that we all live in the same world. Especially when we take the concept of world at its broadest level, there are uncountably many facts about the world that we never even articulate. So deeply do we believe that they really are there in the world. In this account, it's not that children suddenly learn that everyone has a separate, isolated mind and contains totally different contents than one on its own, but that there are special edge cases where the normal assumption of a shared world breaks down and requires corrections. Isn't the idea of a shared world unphysical? I mean, I think it's important to point out that the idea of a shared world isn't the same thing as saying a shared brain or consciousness. While it's obvious to me that the brain is the source of all the phenomena I've described thus far, 
and thus must be processed by each individual human, that doesn't mean seeing ourselves as possessing separate copies of the entire world inside our heads necessarily makes sense. So to use an analogy that isn't metaphysical, think of torrenting files. In this case, there isn't necessarily a central server or global consciousness holding everything all together. But at the same time, the entire file may not actually be present on any one person's computer. All that's necessary is a protocol for sharing and distributing it so that different people will end up agreeing on the file contents. Alternatively, there may be a sense that we have a shared world because the way our brain works is not by storing a copy of the world, but by actually using the existing shared environment to make decisions. So you can catch a pop fly by running to maintain a certain angle between you and the ball. This doesn't require calculating the ball's trajectory, but utilizing the fact that the ball has a trajectory in the environment to do the calculation for you. The difficulty we often have with running in dreams may be a similar example, as the kinesthetic feedback from the ground is normally needed for us to keep up a smooth gait. Thus, it's plausible that we live in a shared world, either agreed upon by an unconscious automatic protocol or through direct reference to the environment itself. The theory of mind that children gain, therefore, would then be a theory for spotting where this typical approach of living in a shared world breaks down and trying to correct the more basic understanding. Now, I'm not trying to make any claims of having an algorithm worked out here, just to say that it doesn't seem obviously unphysical to me that this might be our more basic makeup. Now, dreams do seem harder to reconcile with this and private imagination in general, but I don't think it's hard to argue that dreams are impoverished relative to the actual world we live in. And maybe that's the best argument against the idea that the world is purely subjective, that our dreams are in fact pale visions of the world that we experience when we're awake. Three, the hermeneutic circle and the groundlessness of philosophy. So now we arrive at a difficult point. Much of philosophy has been preoccupied with how we can really know things for certain. How can we ground our knowledge on something that is beyond doubt? So medievals used to do this through appeals to God. Moderns have done this through appeals to reason or science. However, if you follow Heidegger in believing that all these invisible skills and practices underpin our ability to do seemingly more basic things, like just looking at stuff or thinking about things, then you get in a trap. The skills you have are far from a perfectly solid ground to rest your conclusions on. After all, different people, different cultures, different times have had different practices. So how could you possibly come up with one final indubitable truth? Heidegger argues that the only way forward is to do hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the study of interpretation and it usually is applied to texts. So the idea is that if you want to understand, let's say, Moby Dick, you have to start with some interpretation of what it's about. So let's say this guy really hates that whale. And then as you dig deeper, you may end up finding that the initial understanding you had was flawed or even completely contrary to where you started. So that the whale is actually man's search for God or something like that. But what you're starting with is always something. There's no way to go to the ground truth of what Moby Dick is really about since you're always in some partial stage of interpretation given what meanings you already started with. This observation that philosophy is fundamentally ungroundable is seen as a major flaw for some. Doesn't this imply full-blown cultural relativism? The truth is just a social convention rather than anything deeper? Again, I'm not really good enough at philosophy to judge. It's at least unclear to me whether Heidegger was an anti-realist in the way that such beliefs would seem to demand. 
Heidegger makes a big issue out of the fact that beings do not depend on being, suggesting that the entities that exist in the world are, in a certain sense, independent of our intelligibility of them. This would imply that there really is a causal underpinning of the universe that doesn't care what we think about it, and thus a proper object of scientific study. Now, Heidegger's hermeneutic circle starts and stops with phenomenology, but to me, this feels like too narrow a way to think about the world. While it's true that we have to start somewhere, even if that ends up being totally wrong when understanding the universe, I don't see why that circle can't also encompass physics, biology, psychology, economics, and more. If we expand the circle wide enough, I think we can start to see how more basic studies start to look more advanced. So physics, after all, is a study of the most basic things in the universe. But at the same time, the physics department is in a university made of some of the most complex things in the universe, human brains doing physics. To understand what it means to do physics requires to understand psychology, neuroscience, biology, all the way back down to physics again. A circle. I tend to think that people make too big a deal about this kind of ungroundedness. Yes, it does mean that we can never be completely certain we've found the right answer, but I don't see how this implies the opposite worry that everything is totally relative and arbitrary. Certainly the causal properties of the universe influence the beliefs and practices we form. Thus, I don't see why we can't simultaneously admit that science is based on a specific set of cultural practices, publishing papers, weighing evidence, deciding what makes a good experiment, etc but not also see that these practices fit together with the thing that they study. So a hammer may not be understood in its most basic way as just a blob of metal on a wooden shaft, but a hammer made of jello couldn't work at all. So science, too, seems constrained by the universe, even if it does require human minds with cultures and practices to actually implement it. How to avoid reading Being in Time if you want to know more. Some of the ideas that Heidegger makes a big deal of, uh, I can't really make sense of, or they didn't seem compelling to me. So, for instance, the book is called Being in Time, for instance, because apparently time is the key to understanding being. I didn't get it. Don't misconstrue my cherry-picking interesting ideas for a blanket endorsement of Heidegger. Your mileage may vary. If you're interested in learning more, I still don't recommend reading the actual book unless you're willing to grind through it for a couple months. Instead, I recommend the following. There is a Being in the World documentary. If you uh, Google it, you can find it. It's about an hour and a little bit, and it is good, has a really good description. There's also Hubert Dreyfus's original exegesis, Being in the World, which is a book which basically explains Heidegger's Division One of the book in plainer language. There is a course for Being in Time taught by Hubert Dreyfus about Heidegger. This was my main companion for understanding the book, and so I drew on a lot of Dreyfus's explanation to make sense of Heidegger. Additionally, Stanford's Plato Wiki on Heidegger is also a really good short text description of Heidegger's thoughts, but it also includes some of his later ideas about arts, styles of being and culture, technology, and what it means to be living in the modern world. One takeaway I have from this project is that I should probably read more philosophy, and maybe if I do I'll end up backing up on some of the things that I said I agreed with so far. But my thinking is always a work in progress, so I'm content to just share what I find along the way. Thanks for listening to this episode. More episodes like this can be found by searching for Scott H. Young Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Overcast, and most other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider rating my show as it helps other people find out about it. 
More of my work can be found at my website, scotthyoung.com. Thank you.